Welcome to a conversation powered by Connected Learning, where we chat with some of today's leading minds about new learning approaches designed for the demands and opportunities of the digital age. Connected Learning values the new ways many young people today access information, gain expertise, and learn alongside peers and mentors using the internet, social networks, and digital technology. We're excited you're here to join the conversation as we seek to make learning relevant. Hello, everyone. This is Cheryl Grant. I am Director of Social Networking and Badge Research for Haystack. Today, we're talking with Kathy Davidson about connected learning, specifically how it intersects with some of the work she's doing with Haystack and the Digital Media and Learning Competition. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Cheryl. A lot of you listening need no introduction to Kathy Davidson, but we'll hit on a few quick highlights. Kathy currently holds two distinguished chairs at Duke University, the Ruth F. DeVarney Professional, uh, Professor of English and the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies. She is the co-founder of the Global Learning Network Haystack, which administers the annual digital media and learning competitions. And Kathy was also appointed to the National Humanities Council by President Obama and is a celebrated author as well. Kathy, I mentioned what your current positions are, but you are heading into a very exciting transition. Can you tell us a little bit about what's next for you? Sure. It's starting July 1st, I'm going to be heading the Futures Initiative for the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And it's a new program that's going to be working collaboratively with faculty, graduate students, undergraduates, and community members to really think about the most inventive, creative, kinds of learning and teaching that we can be doing now for the world we live in now. Um, the basic idea is that most of the institutions of higher education were designed, the apparatus of higher education was designed between 1865 and 1925. A lot's changed since then. And so this is a way of working together to think about peer learning, connected learning, interest-driven learning, um, how we can relearn in challenging times. Uh, and the array of new ways of connecting across fields and disciplines that we all know are essential in the world we live in, but that are being preserved in a rather archaic form um, in our universities. And we're hoping this initiative, which is going to be set, settled at, situated at the largest public urban university in the country, 450,000 undergraduate and graduate uh, full and part-time students, will set the agenda for the whole country and, and what the United States does for better or worse, is what the world does. So I'm going to say we're going to work together on changing higher education for the world. I can't wait to, to hear how things unfold. And I know people are going to want to keep track of you. So what's the best way for them to, to keep following your work? Sure. You can follow me, of course, on Twitter, Kathy N. Davidson, at Kathy N. Davidson. I also have, also have an author blog, which is just my name, kathydavidson.com. Um, and I also blog regularly as Cat in the Stack on the haystack.org website. Uh, we'll be creating new websites for the Futures Initiative, um, but um, I always believe you make something by also thinking about it. So it might be a while before we make that website because I'm going to be gathering a team of faculty, students, community members to actually think about how we want to represent ourselves online so we can be thinking the process of doing and the process of thinking together, which is one of the um, methods that um, I'm advocating and I know is very much part of connected learning as well. Great. So let's let's jump into some questions and, and hear what you have to think about what's coming next for, for education and, and learning. How would you describe the mission of your work with Haystack as you go into the Futures Initiatives with Duke? What's your favorite part about your work and your projects? 
Well, I think the most important part is um, Haystack is primarily higher education. Uh, the Connected Learning Initiative is, pro is primarily K through 12. But the fact is we often start um, transforming learning um, thinking that early childhood or K through 12 is what has to change. But very few parents at any social level want to jeopardize their children's future by being too experimental. So until higher education changes, really we're stuck. So uh, for me, what's exciting is we're at a tipping point moment where just about everybody knows something is wrong. It started because education costs so much. There's been a 50-year defunding of public education and a commensurate ex um, increase in the cost of private education over the last half century. Um, people know that there's a mismatch between what we learn in college, the kinds of rigid disciplinary divisions, the difference between critical thinking and cre creative contribution. There's so many different things that just don't really fit the world we live in now. So I think we're at a tipping point and I'm very, very excited that so many people are eager for a change. And again, I don't believe that higher that K through 12 can really change until I, uh, higher education changes its standards, its entrance requirements, its metrics, its goals. Um, the workplace has already changed. So really higher education is where we're stuck. And I'm very excited to be working on that as a way of um, thinking about changing peer-to-peer -peer and connected learning um, in all other sectors as well. And this, this need to give education an upgrade, and as you mentioned, higher, higher education is where your big focus is going to be, to, to bring it out of the 20th century and into the 21st. And I know you've been a big part of this, but there seems to be an, an increasing amount of attention. What, in your opinion, are some of the most pressing issues, and what are some of the steps we could take toward making this 21st century update? On the biggest level, the, the biggest thing is we have to um, emphasize again that education is a cultural and social investment. Um, the reason I'm calling this new program the Futures Initiative is it's not it's futures with an S, uh, in the same way that you buy um, futures on the stock exchange or commodity exchange. You're investing now for something that's going to really pay back in the future, and we've lost that sense as a society that you invest in the next generation because it makes your whole society a better place. And um, so that has to be reversed. But I don't think you can ask the public to reinvest in higher education or any kind of public education without really thinking about whether that education is designed for the world we live in now or designed to support certain kinds of turfs, constituencies, practices, habits, traditions, um, comfort levels of people who were trained in an old system. Um, you know, the, the, in the history of technology, it's not often that there's actually a day when things change, but there is in the history of digital technology, and that's April 22nd, 1993. And that was the day, literally, the scientists at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications decided to let the Mosaic 1.0 browser become commercial. Um, Serge Brin has um, calculated that in 1993, after the Mosaic 1.0 browser was made commercial, internet use increased by 230,000% in one year. That's just astonishing. I mean, that's astonishing. And what that meant was for the first time in human history, humans had the ability to have an idea and communicate that idea to anyone else in the world who had an internet connection without an editor, without a publisher, and instantaneously. That's a tremendous opportunity, it's a tremendous risk, and it's a tre tremendous responsibility. 
Education is supposed to be to train you to be more responsible users of our capacities as humans. We haven't made that switch yet in formal education. We haven't made the switch to thinking about not a top-down hierarchical world, but a world where I can think an idea and communicate it to anyone else with an Internet connection without um, anybody filtering what I say. And we haven't really thought through on a kind of ontological and metaphysical level as well as on a practical level what it means to have that human ability and how we can train um, and exercise responsible um, uh, responsibility in for that new and incredible power. I, I love how you're talking about the Internet as this great equalizer, and that makes me think we often hear that education can be a great equalizer, too. We've been hearing that since we had public education in America, but it seems like higher education sometimes reinforces this model of the rich getting richer. How do you think higher education and the way we think about post-secondary learning in general should evolve or must evolve, evolve in order to deal with issues of economic inequality? Yeah, well, tragically, it used to be that, um, that um, higher education was uh, a route to the middle class for people who might not um, have another route to the middle class. But two things have happened in the last 50 years. One, um, higher education now exacerbates rather than ameliorates income inequality. Uh, you have to be rich to go to school. We know that relevance is one of the biggest indicators of who stays in high school or not. And if you don't believe a high school education is going to get you to college and you don't believe that you can afford college and you have that chance, you simply, that it, it contributes to the dropout rate. So um, now we have a smaller and smaller percentage of people from a higher and higher income level going even to public education. And then we also know that the one thing that costs more than education is not having a higher education. So it costs too much to go to school and only the people who can afford it can then go on um, to, to have even greater income in the future. So that's one tendency we have to, to ch change. The second one that's equally important, and it's connected to that, is in the same 50-year period that we've seen a decline in funding for public higher education, we've also seen a terrible, terrible shrinking in funding for public vocational education, non-higher education. So we're both charging more for higher education and not giving kids pathways to things that don't require a higher education. There's all kinds of things that have to do with manufacturing, um, good service and in, in, um, sector jobs, um, uh, personal occupations, everything from you know landscaping to hair care to code writing um, that you don't have to have a higher education for. But we're making very, very few options available to kids in public secondary school. Um, for-profit education has stepped into that sector, but often for-profit sector also exacerbates income inequality and has a very high dropout rate. So we have a real crisis of need. We have a real crisis of um, income inequality. Um, also, you know, the percentage of college students who go on to be college professors is kind of the 1% of college students. Uh, and uh, yet most college education is really designed as if it's the 99%, not the 1%. We're still training ki kids with a higher education system that's really designed to train, to have professors in specialized fields tra train potential professors in specialized fields. That's just an, an unworkable model that is not realistic anymore. And 
those are the kinds of issues we have to deal with. They're huge, but I think everybody is ready for those for us to deal with those issues now. And one of the things that I hear you saying that is not only is it so difficult to and important to get a higher education degree, but it's it's easy to be disengaged. And, and Connected Learning suggests that we need a fourth R in education, which is relevance. Why do you feel this need for relevance is so important to a young person's learning and, and education? Well, I actually like the idea that the real three R's aren't reading, writing, and arithmetic, but relevance, as you said, and also recognition and um, uh, relationships. And what I like about those is relationships are because you need to be connected to others. Learning is social. It's not just learning from a book, but it's learning from peers, um, having a teacher who believe, or a leader or an after school or somebody who believes in you and who sees that special spark in you and, and makes it um, and helps it to flourish. Recognition is that your own interests um, are being fed and somebody finds a pathway through your interests to something that can actually lead to a very productive um, adulthood. Uh, it's not simple vocational training in some reductionist way, but something that really really captures your love and your sparks and your talents and, and helps you to find a way that that can be uh, a way that you can lead a fulfilling um, adult life. And then the third is relevance, and I think relevance is particularly important uh, on a number of levels. One, if you think that you're not going to be able to afford college, there's no relevance at all to having a high school degree. I mean, the real reason to have a high school degree is so that you can go on to college and, and, and get training in college. Um, just the way our, that's just the way income inequality works in our country. Um, relevance also, though, means that something about the education connects to you. You realize this education is the tool, this learning connects me. It's the tool I need that will connect me to a whole world of interesting possibilities out there um, and that make my life and my, my role in society valuable. Um, any kind of education that can emphasize recognizing a student's individual talents, um, building on social relations, um, student to student, student to adults, students to mentors, students to teachers, and play up the relevance of one's own interest to a future life is going to succeed. Without those three, um, really all you have is um, a class, uh, what you mostly have are class motivators uh, that require lots and lots of social structure and social support um, to, to survive and to thrive. And you really walk the talk. You, you teach and you're in classrooms all the time experimenting. In your line of work, what, what are some examples of things that you do in the classroom to make learning relevant for your students? Sure. For the last 10 years, I've pretty much thrown out everything that's the, the, the um, uh, rule book of higher education. So for example, starting about a decade ago, I um, put a syllabus up online, a public syllabus, and each week two students would be in charge of the class and their job was to take what was the reading for that week and decide, read it themselves and decide between themselves whether they wanted to guide, they would serve as teachers for that week and they would decide whether they wanted to guide through students through that reading, through a reading that would be supplemented by things they would suggest or um, something, they would discard it completely and uh, choose something else. And they would have to pitch that to the students and convince their students for the week um, that, that this was uh, an alternative and a good and wise alternative. Um, and then they would make the assignments. 
um, I've since gone further, and not only do students create the syllabus for the week um, and each week, but they actually set assignments and grade um, the students on that assignment. They evaluate them and hand evaluations back to the students. The trick is the next week those two students who are in charge are students again and two other people become teachers. So there's a constant process of students reading, deciding what they're reading, why they're reading it, having to pitch to one another why this lesson is urgent and important, um, giving assignments. Oh, and I should add, the students also write evaluations of the two people who were the teachers for that week. So there's a constant way in which everybody is getting feedback about the content, about the method, and about whether learning is happening and how assessment works. Uh, I do peer-to-peer -peer assessment even before we embarked on this large badging pathway. I was doing peer-to-peer -peer assessment that amounted to a kind of proto-badging where students would peer evaluate each other's work and contribution to the group. Um, my students also write a class constitu constitution each week. We read, uh, not each week, each class. We begin by reading a number of examples of constitutions. We've read the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. We've read preamble to the Australian Constitution. We've read um, the Mozilla Manifesto, and we choose one and then put it into a Google Doc, and the students tailor that um, manifesto or constitution to their needs in the class, and they come up with the rules by which students will achieve excellence in the class. This is kind of what Finnish educational system does, and I've done it very successfully in my classes. Uh, what I find tirelessly, and I don't just teach Duke students. My classes are typically made up of Duke, University of North Carolina, and North Carolina State um, students, and sometimes uh, students from the local uh, historically black um, college, North Carolina Central University. I find the students set the bar of achievement far, far higher than I would and work very, very hard to make sure everybody gets over that bar. So it's an incredibly intense learning experience. The most common um, comment I get on feedback uh, from my classes is that it was the hardest and the best class my students ever took. And for the first time in their lives, they really thought about what education is in a way that they simply had taken for granted before. And I have to say, it's also the hardest teaching I've ever done and by far the most rewarding. It's an incredibly profound experience to let students lead the way. And what is so interesting about those examples is it really is about the process. And one thing I know from observing you is that you really use the digital tools to support what it is that you're going for, whether it's relevance or getting the students invested. Connected learning encourages leveraging the, the tools of the digital age, the internet, social media, to enhance education and learning. How would you characterize the possibilities of using modern technology for learning, and how would you address concerns about you spending too much time already with digital media? Well, first of all, I think, you know, every, my, my original field was the uh, mass printing uh, of the 18th century. And the kinds of things that Jefferson and Adams worried about was people spending too much time reading mass-produced uh, novels uh, instead of just having a, a preacher tell them what ideas to think from the pulpit or a magistrate to tell them what, what ideas to think from the town hall. Parallel exactly our own anxiety about kids spending too much time on digital media. Um, that's a recurrent generational uh, complaint that people have. Uh, I think instead of talking about too much time and too little time, we have to think about what what kids are, what young people, what we're all doing online, and whether we're using our time online wisely and well. Um, I actually don't use a lot of um, digital tools in my classroom. I use, I think, technology doesn't really. Um, 
change the world, ideas change the world, and technology can help make those ideas public and connected. So everything we do in my classroom happens publicly. So anyone can look in and see what's happening in my classes. We keep public websites. Sometimes we do webinars. Sometimes we use Google Docs or Google Hangouts that are open to anyone who wants to um, contribute. Um, my students don't ever write work that just uh, comes to me. I put a grade in it and then put it in a box outside my door and maybe the student picks it up later. All their work is done publicly online and available for comment from just about anybody who wants to comment. It's all on Haystack or sometimes on GitHub or sometimes on Rap Genius, sometimes on a public Google Doc. But my students take responsibility for their ideas in a public way. So I think in that case, technology helps to make the case that um, we all have a role in society. And even at a very early age, we can be contributing to better ways of thinking and communicating and interacting with one another online. And Kathy, you have been very involved in the, the badge, Badges for Lifelong Learning movement. Is there a favorite story that brings badges into the connected learning model that you want to share with people? What excites me about badging is if we can work on the technology and the value systems, we might be able to have a much more flexible, customizable, peer-to-peer um, -peer even um, uh, system that can still serve our functions of having algorithms that can find things like communication abilities, collaborative abilities, abilities to synthesize vast amounts of knowledge, um, ability to be a game changer, uh, somebody who's an innovator, ability to be a fire starter, somebody who comes up with great ideas, ability to be an implementer, who's the person who can take a project through to completion. Those are all really important human skills that teachers know about, but we have no way now of doing machine-readable ways of charting those kinds of achievements. So we're stuck with two terrible measures. One, standardized testing, which misses that whole human component completely, and two, recommendations and, and um, um, uh, curriculum vita or resumes, which are so easy to fudge and fib that people barely believe in them anymore. And with recent kinds of liabilities and litigations that have been made, people are afraid that they're going to be um, held accountable for what they write in the recommendations. So they lie. They say bland and positive things because they're afraid they're going to be sued for libel if they don't. So we have, a, we have a broken, broken, broken system. And I think badging is the first thing in my whole lifetime that I've seen that gives us the possibility of fixing a broken system with something that may not be perfect, but is a whole lot better than what we have. Kathy, it is always a pleasure talking to you. I learn something every time we have a conversation. Thank you. Um, for anybody who wants to read about Kathy's views on badges or connected learning, she writes, uh, prolifically on Haystack and has mentioned her, her um, website, kathydavidson.com, as well as her Twitter, uh, Kathy N. Davidson. Kathy, thank you, and, and we wish you the best in your futures initiatives at CUNY. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you, Cheryl, and best of luck with connected learning everywhere. Thanks for joining us here at the Connected Learning Alliance. If you missed any of this conversation or want to listen to more discussions, check out our website at CLAlliance.org or subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes. See you back here for more talks with change makers and thought leaders who are building the next generation of learning.